Gentlemen, we're sitting here in Charlotte, North Carolina, to have a radio debate with Dr. Eugenie Scott from California. We're going to start in just a few moments. Supposed to go, who knows how long. I'm speaking at uh, Denver Baptist Church tonight, tomorrow night. Uh, thought we'd just videotape this radio debate and see how this turns out so folks can get the, a feel of what it's like to have to debate with these folks who believe in evolution. We're at WBT, 11:10 uh, a.m., and it is now 3:10 in the afternoon on the 8th, and we're ready to start. Oh boy, it was a busy weekend for me. I don't know about you, but I spent part of it with uh, Katharina Witt. We'll talk about that later, though. More about that later. We've been talking about this for uh, a couple of days, too, getting everybody ready for this. Uh, a couple of months ago, Dr. Kent Hoven joined us on the air when he was in town to speak at the uh, Concord Bible Church, and he is back tonight and tomorrow night to speak at the, uh, it'll come to me, help me out here, at uh, the uh, Denver. Denver Baptist Church up on Lake Norman, about 30 miles north of uh, Charlotte on Highway 16, tonight and tomorrow from 7 to 9. Uh, Dr. Hoven is a creationist. He became a Christian at the age of 16, and uh, although he was, you have a scientific background, that you were, I believe, a science teacher, is that correct? Uh, yes, sir, high school science teacher. Uh, you came to disbelieve what the theories of science were teaching. Well, I came well, yeah, to, why don't you tell me what... How, I came how, to disbelieve how, how, evolution. Well, evolution has nothing to do with science. I still love science. I'm in favor of science, but it's just evolution that's stirred in with science that I disbelieve. And have since done a lot of your own research in this and have... Uh, come up with presentations that you take around the country uh, to show the veracity of creationism versus the theory of evolution. Correct? Yes, yes, sir. That's correct. The last time that you were here, you volunteered to come back, and you've also volunteered to debate with an evolutionist. And so we have uh, contacted one, and she's joining us today from uh, California, Dr. Eugenie Scott, has been since 1987 the executive director of the National Center for Science Education Incorporated. It's a pro-evolution, non-profit science education organization with members in every state. Dr. Eugenie Scott holds a Ph.D. in physical anthropology from the University of Missouri. She has taught at the University of Kentucky, the University of Colorado, and in the California State University system. She's a human biologist. Her research has been in medical anthropology and skeletal biology, and she has worked nationwide to communicate the scientific method to the general public and to improve how science as a way of knowing is taught in school. She has appeared on Our Magazine, Geraldo, Crossfire, Issues on Trial, The Morning Edition on NPR, The Pat Buchanan Show, and All Things Considered, etc., etc. And she joins us this afternoon. I thank you. I'm not exactly sure how we'll begin, but I guess we'll begin with the basic argument. And the basic argument is that scientists, or some scientists, believe that the world was not created precisely the way it's spelled out in the book of Genesis, but creationists believe literally in the book of Genesis. Is that pretty much the argument we have here? Well, today? there are probably quite a few creationists who would still not believe the literal Genesis account. They would maybe say God did it, but not according to the book of Genesis. So there's, there's a variety of creationists. I am a, a Bible-believing uh, young earth creationist. I believe the Bible is literally true, scientifically accurate, and that the world is less than 10,000 years old. And, Doctor, what do the evolutionists say, Dr. Uh, uh, Scott? <laughs> Could that speaker on? You can't hear her? Put that by the microphone. Evolution as the way God 
God chose to bring about the world. Um, I would say that the distinction, and perhaps can't you might agree with me on this, the distinction between creation and evolution is not whether God created, because uh, certainly God could have created any way he wanted to, including through evolution, if that's the way he chose. The distinction really is a question of history. What happened in the history of the universe? Did everything appear suddenly all at one time, as the literal reading of the Bible would, uh, of Genesis would suggest, or does the universe have a history? Did change take place since the beginning, whatever that beginning, uh, whenever that beginning occurred? I, would, I think it is clear that the vast, vast majority of the scientific community agree that change has taken place since the beginning, that what we see today in the world is not the same as what has been in the past. Well, uh, I would have to say that we, have, we need to define our terms here. Evolution, the word simply means unrolling or outrolling or rolling out, so, you know, there's a lot of varieties of it, but uh, change with through time. And I, I agree, there have been changes through time. but. There is a cosmic evolution, which is the the bigger scheme of things, the Big Bang Theory, you know, the universe starting from nothing. Right. And then there is a biological evolution, which is uh, changes once life gets here, then there are changes. And what I object to, I guess, is the general theory of evolution, that the entire universe made itself out of nothing for no apparent reason, and that no creator is necessary. I would say the, a real strict definition would make evolution uh, atheistic. Well, Ken, I, I don't see how you can say that, because evolution is a science, and a science cannot be atheistic or pro-religious. A science has to be neutral toward religion. Uh, and what I hear you, I don't mean to interrupt, but Dr. Scott, what I hear, heard you saying in your opening comments was the fact that, at least what I gathered, was the two are not necessarily mutually exclusive. That but the, the thing about science is science is a particular way of knowing. Revelation is another way of knowing. There's a variety of ways of knowing. Science is a particular way of knowing that is restricted. Uh, in science, we're trying to understand a restricted phenomenon, which is the natural world, uh, and we have restrictions on how we go about understanding that phenomenon. Well, now, let me ask you this, because it's called the theory of evolution. Correct. So if it is, in fact, a fact, why is it referred to as the theory of evolution? It's both. Uh, what do you think, when you hear the word gravity, what do you think of? Uh, Newton. <laughs> <laughs> the, I guess the theory of gravity, right? Correct. Gravity is a theory. Evolution is a theory. Theory in science is a term of art. It means a special, uh, a special thing within science that it doesn't mean on the street, so to speak. If you talk about, well, I have a theory that the uh, Giants are going to win the World Series this year, uh, that's sort of a casual use of the term theory that's not the same as the way a scientist uses it. The word theory in science means explanation. And gravity is an explanation for why things fall to the earth when you drop them. Evolution is an explanation for for a wide variety of, of uh, information, things from the fossil record, from biogeography, from biochemistry, from geology, from lots and lots of different uh, areas. And to say that evolution is a theory merely means that it is a well-founded explanation, the best explanation we've got so far and the one that is accepted thus far. Now, both of you have scientific backgrounds, so it would seem to me that science is open to question and open to revelation, so therefore, if 10 years from now uh, you discovered something in your scientific research, either of you, uh, that would dispute the theory of revolution, or evolution rather, or would dispute uh, your, your, your theory of creationism, would you be, either of you be open to change? Absolutely. Oh, I oh yes, I would. That's an excellent question, and I would actually like to ask Kent, 
what kind of data would refute young Earth special creation? I've never been able, when I've asked this of other young Earth special creationists, I've never been able to get an answer that's, uh, that is actually testable. Can you give me an example of what kind of data would cause you to rethink whether the world is created all at one time and all of the plants and animals in their present form? Uh, yes, there's, you mentioned a key word there, testable. I think uh, you made a statement a few minutes ago that evolution is a science. I would object to that uh, vehemently. Evolution is a philosophy. It's actually a religion. Well, it's let's something... talk about the science first. Okay, well, yeah, that's what I want to distinguish between. See, evolution is not science. It's a religion that people choose to believe in. But, uh, Kent, what, are, what kind of data would cause you to give up your uh, conclusion that the literal view of the Bible, that ever, all the plants and animals were created in their present form, a short period of time ago within thousands of years. Right. What kind yeah. of data would cause you to give that idea up? Yeah, I will get to that in a second, but we got a couple things hanging that I think are, are very preliminary to this. Uh, uh, the definition of science is not a way of knowing. Uh, you'll notice in the last 20 years there's been a real tendency in the textbooks to change the definition of science to what she said earlier, science is a way of knowing. If you look it up in a dictionary, science is the accumulated body of knowledge that we have. It's things that we know. The scientific method involves things that are observable, testable, and demonstrable. Evolution is none of those. Nobody observes it happening. We don't observe any major changes. We don't see a horse, you know, coming from a butterfly. We well, don't see. Not. <laughs> we don't see. Certainly we don't. The evolutionists would never predict that. Sure. Well, they they predict it did happen over a long period of time. Hardly. I don't think anybody's predicted that horses came from butterflies. I think somebody's misled you about what evolution is, if okay. that's the case. Do you believe... Wait a minute, wait. Do, do you believe... Wait, whoa, what, uh, let, 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 ones, uh, introduced us to. Okay, do you believe fish gradually changed to amphibians, amphibians changed to reptiles, reptiles changed to mammals? Actually, that's not the way it happened, but we keep, to get, we keep getting distracted here, Mr. Collins. The, the, the question I asked, which we sort of haven't been able to get to, is what kind of data would uh, Kent accept that would demonstrate to him okay. that all plants and animals did not occur suddenly all at one time within the last couple thousand years. All right, let me jump in here. I'd like Dr. Hovind, if you would answer that question, I'll come back and uh, we'll sure. all have her answer how the how evolution happened. If it didn't happen the way you just described with fish becoming amphibians, amphibians becoming reptiles, reptiles becoming mammals, we'll find out how it did happen. Yeah, which is ultimately what they believe, that and, and life well, coming from non-life. Answer her okay. question. In order for something to be scientific, it has to be observable, testable, demonstrable. There is no way this argument's going to be resolved scientifically. You can't offer data that proves the Earth is billions of years old because you were not there, I was not there, nobody you know was there. It is outside the realm of science. This idea of proving the Earth is young or old is, is simply impossible scientifically. It's not testable, it's not demonstrable. The problem is uh, there are two different ways to look at things, and some people, in, they interpret the facts in light of their philosophy. The evolutionists have already decided the Earth is billions of years old, and so when they look at the fossil record, they see those different layers of rocks as being different ages. The creationist looks at the different layers of rocks, the same data, we're both staring at the same geologic formations, and we, creationist comes to the conclusion that all of this, all of these rock layers were deposited very rapidly in a catastrophe, the worldwide flood. So we both have the same data, but we're coming to opposite conclusions based on our prejudices, our preconceived ideas. So it's what you're saying then is there are no data that would cause you to reject your point of view because your, your scientific creationism really isn't scientific. Well, neither is evolution. You mentioned in the letter that you faxed We're talking in. about evolution yet. We're talking about you. We'll get back to evolution in a second. Right, no, no, what I you're agree. Saying is that scientific creationism is not scientific. I agree. There's no possible way to prove it scientifically. Why do you? Why do you guys keep? Why do you guys keep trying to get it taught in the public school science classes? If it's not science, it shouldn't be taught. Well, see, that's to prove the point. Evolution isn't science either, and it shouldn't be now taught. Let's talk about whether evolution is scientific. Uh, first of all, you have an exceedingly narrow definition of what science is. 
Uh, if we had to refer to things scientific as only those which were directly testable, directly observable, we'd have a pretty short list of sciences that we could, uh, that we could talk about. For example, particle physics. Nobody has seen an atom. Nobody ha can observe the particles that are smashing into each other in, a, uh, in an atom smasher. Oh, I agree. Sure. So, therefore, particle physics is not science. No, there, there is a lot of theory in particle physics. An awful lot of theory. But hey, but, but it's not science because you can't directly observe it. Well, my point in, uh, in this is that, and it's very difficult to get an evolutionist to admit this, what they have is exactly the same as what a creationist has. They have a strong belief in something that is not observable, testable, or demonstrable. Both are fundamentally religions. And no, now you're saying that unless it's directly observable, it's not scientific. So, but but you'll, I, I think that you'll probably agree that particle physics is a science. So there must be some kinds of sciences in which direct observation is not completely relevant. Okay, uh, yes, and I would say creation would fall into that category. Creation is, is a scientific theory that is not directly testable. I mean, we weren't here when God created the world. Well, but I, it is I can think of some ways to test young Earth creationism. Okay, let's hear one. Well, um, you should be doing this job because one of the things that, an, that, a, that a real scientist does is come up with ways to that his theory or explanation could possibly be refuted. Okay, I've, um, got, I've got a good one for you if you can't think of one. But You know, if you have the, uh, if, if, if the entire geological column was laid down by the flood, which is your position, how do you explain 80 different layers of coal in the Midwest? Were there 80 different floods? Oh, no, no, that could all be done in one flood. Mount St. Helens is doing a good job of proving that for us right now as we speak. No, no, that, Mount St. Helens shows that catastrophes of various sorts and large quantities of water can produce very impressive uh, geological features. It exactly does not right. by any stretch of the imagination demonstrate that the whole Grand Canyon could be laid down by, by water. Well. Um, no, wait, wait, now you would have to agree, I'm sure, if you've studied your geology, that all of the layers of strata in the geologic column uh, in the Grand Canyon are sedimentary rock, which means they were indeed laid down by water. Nope, some of them were laid down by, by okay, uh, air. Volcanic, yeah, are, wind are blown. Deposited, are aeolian deposits, which is pretty tough for you guys to handle when it No, 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 it, you mean talk about wind blown ash and stuff? Sure, that happens. I think in the flood there was a catastrophe, disaster, volcanoes going off, there was ash layers. The well, trees. It's pretty crazy because you got the flood going over, depositing a water layer, and then you have the flood waters going someplace, an ash layer being deposited, and then the flood water coming back and depositing water layer. You know, this whole thing is just really silly. Okay, I got I got I got to take a break right now, and, and we'll come back and we'll continue this conversation. And I want to find out uh, since you refuted. Well, I want to I want to find out how you feel evolution actually did place take place, and let me get a response from you, Doctor Doctor Scott, about. Uh, uh, what data we have that proves the Earth is older than, how old do you say it is, Dr. Hoven? 6,000 Six years? Six or 7,000 years. Okay. Yeah. Our guests are Dr. Kent Hoven here in the studio and Dr. Eugenie Scott uh, on the phone with us from California, and we'll continue our conversation in just a second. Going somewhere over the holidays, rent a book on tape from Audio Library. Entertain the kids in the car or catch up with the hottest new novels and bestsellers on tape with over 5,000 titles to choose from at Audio Library, Cotswold Mall, and McMullen Creek. I want to tell you about a place called with a PhD in physical anthropology, and here in the studio with us, she joining us by telephone, by the way, here in the studio, Dr. Kent Hovind, who is in town to speak about creation science at the Denver Baptist Church tonight and tomorrow night. He has a master's degree in education and a Ph.D. in education as well. He began a full-time ministry of creation science evangelism several years ago. He's been our guest before, and he is the one that suggested this debate between creationists and evolutionists. Uh, Dr. Uh, Scott. Yes. Uh, Dr. Hoven posed a question a little while ago about how evolutionists view evolution. Did fish become amphibians? They in turn became reptiles. Reptiles became mammals. Is that how evolutionists view this? 
this process? Well, only in a very rough and general sense. Uh, one, you ought to think about evolution. Let me give you a little metaphor to maybe help you understand it a little bit better. Um, you, have, uh, you have parents, and you have grandparents, and you have great-great-grandparents, and great-great-greats, and on and on ad nauseum. Those are your lineal ancestors, right? Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, you also have uh, your, not just your parents, but your uncles and aunts, and your great-uncles and great-aunts, and your great-great-uncles and great-great-aunts, etc. You've got all these collateral kin as well. And you've got their offspring. You've got your cousins and your second cousins and your third cousins, your umpty-ump cousins, and so forth. When you look at the fossil record, um, the probability of fossilization is not very good. What you're likely to find is a lot of these collateral kin, and not 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 necessarily very many of those linear kin, lineal kin, the uh, parents and grandparents and great great grandparents of a species. Now, if we look at the fossil record, what we see is a very definite pattern. We see at the beginning very simple organisms, and then we find multicellular organisms. We find uh, in the Cambrian, we find a, a, a whole explosion of, of invertebrate organisms with hard shells, so they show up better in the fossil record. And we can find ancestors for most of the living invertebrates in that Cambrian uh, explosion. A little bit later on, we find that in the marine, in the, in the ocean, you find uh, animals that look like very primitive fish. They're not fish like you're going to go out and catch this weekend. They're not the bony fish. They're a very primitive kind of fish. They don't even have bony skeletons. Uh, they've got cartilage skeletons. Uh, if you want to call them fish, you can call them fish, but you shouldn't get them mixed up with uh, your local perch and your local trout. It's only later on that you get those more advanced kinds of fishes. But what I hear you saying so far, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that we have instances of f- fossilized records of various and sundry different species, some of which do no, no longer exist. They are extinct. Correct. But do we have any missing links? For instance, where is the missing link that uh, would go between a man and an ape? Where is the missing link that would go between a, th- that the fish you were just talking about and the kind of fish that we have today? Uh, there, actually, there, there actually are intermediate forms between uh, the primitive fish and the bony fish, or the osteichthyes. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't, uh, I'm not a specialist in ichthyology, so mm-hmm. I really can't just roll those right off my tongue. Okay. There are some nice transitions between these early fish-like creatures, these early marine forms, and the earliest land forms. Some people call them amphibians. They're probably better called tetrapods, which means four-footed, because they have some similarities to amphibians. But when you think of amphibian, you think of a modern-day amphibian like a frog or a salamander or something. They, re- they weren't like those at all. They were very primitive. Uh, when you come to humans and, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, uh, I'm, I got distracted here by your question. We do have nice intermediates between those early marine forms and the first land forms. We've got lovely intermediates between um, primitive land um, creatures that some people call reptiles, although they're not identical to modern reptiles, of course, and mammals. And eventually, when you get up to the primates, you've got quite a, uh, quite a, a marvelous record of um, of fossils of, of early humans. Uh, there's a lot of confusion out there. People think that the human fossil record is particularly skimpy. It isn't. We've got lots and lots of fossils. But do we have fossils of humans that are more like apes than humans? In other words, indi- In fact, if you read the creationist literature, they have a great deal of difficulty with the human fossil record because in their way of thinking, there's only the created ape kind and only the created human kind. And so they have a, rather a lot of difficulty forcing every fossil into this procrustean bed of either ape or human. 
Um, and what's amusing to look at the creationist literature is you take a fossil like uh, Homo erectus, the Peking man or Java man fossils, and some creationists say, oh, well, it's just an ape, and other creationists say, oh, well, it's all human. I mean, it's obvious that this is an intermediate form, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's difficult to classify. Okay, Doctor. But earlier than the, uh, than the Homo erectus fossils, and it gets even more... Um, uh, difficult to classify these forms. They look more and more ape-like. I want to ask you a question in a second about the age of the Earth and why you feel that you have scientific proof that it is as old as the mo uh, evolutionists say it is, but Dr. Hoban has been taking notes furiously over here, so let him have a crack at some of the things that you've said so far. Well, yeah, we've uncovered a can of worms here. Um, she says the fossil record is not good. Um, that's always a good one, uh, shield to hide behind. You know, we don't have these missing links. Actually, the whole chain is missing. Well, we've got plenty of fossils. We've got lots of intermediate forms. Okay. Um, I, I, I disagree 100%. I, I think I could discredit each and every one, or it could be interpreted from a creationist viewpoint. There are probably many species that have gone extinct. If the creator designed the creation with a variety of different kinds, basic kinds of animals, and they produced varieties of offspring, for instance, dogs, you know, you can, there's 250 kinds of dogs, and they all came from, a same, from, from a common ancestor. It was the dogs that got off Noah's Ark. How about but, beetles? There's hundreds of kinds of beetles. I don't know how many different various kinds there are. There's lots of species and subspecies, and, you know, you break it down. See, our, our modern classification system, done by Carolus Linnaeus here in the last few hundred years, is not necessarily... You know, species is not necessarily the biblical kind. Uh, well, that's, that's a very difficult issue for you folks because well, it's I difficult for you folks. defines uh, kind as species, as family, even as order, and one even defined it as a phylum. So if you've got a concept that is that wishy-washy, it's pretty difficult to say that it's a very good scientific uh, uh, way of classifying but, nature. But, but do we have anything that's currently living that we can point to and say, yes, that used to be so-and-so but it has evolved into something else we do have we do have things that we can point to and say yes they have adapted to their environment but can we say that uh one kind of marsupial became another kind of marsupial well how about lions and tigers how about if we look at at uh, speciation and action so to speak okay uh, if you take lions and tigers basically they occupy the same kind of ecological niche one in africa one in asia it's a large uh, felid, uh, it's uh, hunting, hunting large uh, ungulate animals generally by stalking rather than by running them down. And it basically kills animals because of its very, very great strength. Um, tigers and lions can interbreed in a zoo. Uh, there have been a few cage cases where accidentally uh, tigers and lions have gotten together in the biblical sense and have pr tr produced ligers or tigans, whatever you want to call them, but it's a hybrid between a tiger and a lion. It should normally occur in nature, of course. But what that shows is that these two um, species, who are, which are really quite different morphologically, actually are genetically similar enough to exchange genes and, and still be considered close to being the same species. Now, I suppose a creationist would explain that, well, God actually created the lion kind or maybe the tiger kind, and they've diverged since the flood. I think the, the evolutionist argument is much more satisfactory. It would, the evolutionist would say that you've got, back in the Miocene period, you've got um, uh, large cats that expanded over the Africa and Asia and even Eurasian continent. They were separated off uh, when the, uh, during the Pliocene when the climate got considerably drier and the Arabian Desert area sort of cut off this uh, faunal transfer from one continent to another. And you end up with uh, lions in Africa and tigers in Asia, which are in the process of diversifying into two separate species. Let, let, me, let, me, uh, let me ask you a question, Doctor. Oh, but they're still the same kind of animal. They're still a cat. 
I mean, change the butterfly to a lion. Now, that would be evolution. And no, see, it wouldn't be. It'd be, uh, it'd be nonsense. No evolutionist but, on this planet ever said that lions are descended from butterflies. Okay, they so believe... If you go back far enough, you can probably find a common answer to butterflies and lions. See, that, that's a religion. Butterflies you, and lions. But it's, it's absurd to say that lions and butterflies are directly, you know, one evolved into the other. Okay, let me, let me ask Dr. Hovind a question. I have to break, take a break in a second here. But how do you explain, if, if life began as the Bible says it does in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, animals were created on one day and then man was created on another day and woman, you know, following that. How do we explain that all the kangaroos in the world are in Australia? Australia. That all the tigers and lions, except those who've been moved artificially here, and elephants are in Africa, that uh, horses were not native to America, that they were brought here from Europe. Uh, why wouldn't, uh, why wouldn't, why wouldn't, particularly the Middle East, you have elephants and... That's what you're asking. Pardon me? You're at, the question you're asking, uh, Mike, is how do you explain biogeography? How do you Correct, explain yeah. distribution of plants and animals? Well, uh, I would have no problem. I would say there was a worldwide flood 4,400 years ago. There were two of each or seven of some of basic kinds of animals on the board Noah's Ark. And in the last 4,400 years, there's been an enormous variation within the created kind. I don't know if lions and tigers have a common ancestor. Um, but wait a minute. If the flood took place... And the, and the ark came down on Mount Ararat. In that region, right. In that region. How do you explain kangaroos exclusively migrating to Australia across a large landmass and across a large body of water after that and uh, having oak trees in England and America but not in the Middle East? Well, the different climates are... You know, there's biological warfare going on. That's not a good term to use, you know, but uh, the, the species do compete for, for land space, and, and some maybe would not be competent to survive. But how do they get there? How do they get there? Well, if the oceans were not as deep as they are today, if you lowered the oceans just 1,000 feet, and they average 15,000 feet in depth, if you took that much water out of the oceans, all the continents become connected. There's the continental land bridge would be enormous between all these continents. The Bible says in the book of Genesis chapter 10, in the days of Peleg, about 100 years after the flood, the earth was divided. There are several different creationist viewpoints on that, and it's not uh, provable. Nobody was there. But uh, the interpretation that I give to that is that the ice caps that had come all the way down to Kansas City, Missouri, during the time of the flood, were melting back. And that's why we have a continental shelf. And that's why, within the first 100 years, the animals were able to get to different continents and then became isolated there and trapped. Uh, where they are. There are marsupials over here, and kangaroo fossils have been found in other places. They've been found in Africa. but uh, They haven't. Uh, yes, they have. Kangaroo I... fossils in Africa? That's nonsense. I, your question is an excellent one, Mike. You've got the two little kangaroos hopping from the Middle East over across uh, South Asia, and actually some creationists bring in continental drift here. They have the marsupials of, of uh, Australia, this very unique fauna, hopping over into the um, uh, continent of Australia, which then... Uh, amazingly breaks apart from uh, Asia at that point and sails down about 45 miles per hour to its present location in the South Pacific. But isn't it funny that, that the only place where you find fossil kangaroos and fossil Australian marsupials is in Australia? How come if those little varmints had to go all the way from the Middle East to South Asia and across into, uh, into Australia that they didn't leave any fossils behind them? They must not have reproduced. And, and well, no, 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 just a minute. Uh, kangaroo kind managed to stay close to each other. Did they hold hands all the way across the uh, ocean? I mean, you know, the biogeography is, is a real problem for flood geology. All right, I've got to take a break, uh, and when I come back, I want to ask you, Dr. Uh, Dr. Scott, uh, how you can prove, through scientific means, the age of the Earth.
because that's one of the questions that came up last time Dr. Hoven was here. Uh, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you refuted uh, carbon dating. Yes, sir. Okay. We'll talk about that when we come right back on WBT. <laughs> FHA refinancing program that you've heard so much about. No credit report, no job or income verification, and no points on loans over $70,000. Mortgage Group of America, can I help you? Mortgage Group of America is meeting the growing demand for innovative mortgage refinancing. And right now, interest rates remain at a 20-year low. But how long it will last, no one knows. By calling right now, you'll start saving money every month on your VA or FHA mortgage payment. There's no credit report, no job or income verification, and no points on loans over $70,000. Justin joins us from California. She uh, is a pro-evolution, uh, evolutionist, I guess is the, the best way to say that. Before we, I want to get into the topic of, because both of you want to get into this, the topic of creationism and evolution versus religion or evolution as a religion. But first, uh, both today and last time Dr. Hoven was here, he disputed the scientific evidence, quote-unquote, of the age of the Earth as uh, put forward by scientists who have used carbon dating. How do we know, Dr. Scott, that the Earth is older than Dr. Hoven says it is, 6,000 years old? Well, we know immediately from looking at tree ring dates. Uh, you know, you understand about how every year a tree puts on mm -hmm. an annular ring. Right. And you can, uh, you can match up trees from an area and literally count back one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years from when that tree was cut down to when it was started and so forth and so on. And tree ring dates already go back to in excess of 12,000 years. So right there in a very, very simple, non-chemical, non, uh, not, not difficult at all uh, procedure, uh, the world is obviously more than 6,000 years old. You can do the same thing with... Um, with uh, cores from, uh, from the ocean, sea cores, and cores from um, uh, glaciers. Glaciers also put on sort of an annular ring in a sense. They, uh, they put on uh, identifiable uh, uh, layers with every year. I mean, there's all kinds of, of ways that don't really take a whole lot of, don't take a big laboratory to understand to immediately show that the world is more than 6,000 years. But, of course, evolutionists claim that the world is billions of years old. And you don't have to depend upon radiocarbon dates. That's only one kind of, of uh, radioactive isotope. Dr. Hoven was over here shaking his head during the tree ring explanations. So. Sure, yes. Uh, overlapping. Uh, overlapping. still there, Doctor? Yes, I'm there. Okay, just checking. Yeah, the overlapping tree rings uh, is an interesting one. There's been a lot of different studies on that. Dendrochronology is interesting. The, uh, the idea is that you can match up the burn marks if a tree had a fire, uh, for forest. No, 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 you don't match up the burn marks. You match up the actual width of the rings. Okay. The, uh, you have to use the same species. Sure, and I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that some trees produce more than one ring a year and some produce no rings a year. It's, it's not an exact science like you try to make it out to be. Well, it is because if you use bristlecone pine, they only put one year, they only put one ring per year, and bristlecone pine are like redwoods. They last for a very, they live for very, very long periods of time. Oh, I agree, and the oldest living bristlecone pine is 4,300 years old, which would put it after the flood. The Bible teaches the flood was 4,400 years ago. The flood, flood took place. Um, well, hold on. Now, why is the oldest living tree 4,300 years old? Bris oldest living bristlecone pine. I think that's pretty impressive that there's anything that old. I mean, oh, yeah. what, you're expecting to have one that's 6,000 years old? Come on. Well, why not? I mean, you're the one that believes it's that old. I mean, I'm saying there isn't any physical proof that anything uh, was here before. And I think before the flood, you know, some trees were the, obviously growing in, in around the world. And the, the, cre the evolutionist idea that uh, the, they try to get off across the point that the 
creationists believe that all life started in the Garden of Eden. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. Animals and plants were created all over the world. It was only man that started in the Garden of Eden. The world was full of critters. He, she mentioned the ice cores. That's interesting. They just dug up some World War II airplanes that were had crash-landed there on the, uh, in Greenland in uh, 1944, I believe. They were 250 feet deep in the ice with thousands of layers laminate layers, it would look like they'd been down there for 50,000 years because of all these different layers. All you got to have is one volcano a thousand miles away or 10,000 miles away and you get an ash cloud drift over. It deposits many layers. Ice cores is a very inexact science. You cannot prove the world is billions of years old from that. Most planes are 250 feet deep in well, less than 50 years. I don't know about those planes, but I do know that when it comes to tree rings, you don't have to have one tree that's 14,000 years old in order to, to trace back um, the annular rings, you compare different trees. If you find an archaeological site, say, in the southwest, that uh, where the Indians had used bristlecone pine for beams or for some other purpose, you can take a core from that and you can match it up to that tree that is 4,000 years old and see where those rings match up. And they will. They'll, they'll be wider, narrow, wider, narrow, depending. And, and you know, it's... <laughs> Well, hold on. I'm sure you're familiar if you've, you know, had biology and stuff that uh, trees, uh, the, the width of their ring is determined by a number of things. And uh, the California fires here this last week showed us that uh, sometimes the fire rip, rips up one valley and leaves another valley alone. Maybe the uh, burn marks or maybe even the width of the rings. If, if a tree was growing with other trees around it, as it matures, the other trees fall down, it gets more sunlight. Now, it gets a wider ring where another tree 50 feet away does not get a wider ring. The rings do not always match up exactly, and it is not an exact science like they try to make it out to believe. Okay, i got a break. One more time. When we come back, I, to me, as the inter, inter, interloper here or the intermediary here, uh, it seems to make little difference whether you're right, Dr. Hoven, or whether Dr. Scott is right. Because it, to me, evolution is not mutually exclusive to a belief in a creator. Right. And not, nor is your uh, point of view, Dr. Hoven. So I want to find out why you both feel... Uh, the way you feel and, and, and why you feel, Dr. Hovind, that the evolutionists are, are really a religion, a religious group. Yeah, that's all it is, is a that, religion. To me, that's, I don't understand that, so we'll, okay, we'll, we'll sure. get the answer to that and when we come back in just a second. With what you need to get cooking this holiday season indoors and out, Butterfields, etc., in South Park, and the brand brought up the topic of religion here, and there is some question about whether evolution should be taught in the schools and about whether creationism should, you know, why it's not allowed to be taught in the schools. And uh, you, Dr. Hovind, feel that the evolutionists approach this like a religion. Uh, why? Well, to me, to me, religion automatically says there must be a god at the top of the pedestal, and creationists deny that evolutionists believe that God is responsible for well, it. Well, no, no, the evolutionists definitely have a couple of gods. They have the god of chance. They have the god of time. They believe the world's billions of years old. Um, they, it's a religious belief in the sense that it, it's not observable or testable. They cannot show how the matter got here. The world is made of matter. Space is full of matter. Where did it come from? How did it get here? There has some. It had to be created. So, th there it is a religion. Now they believe no no deity was responsible. The earth, the universe, just kind of made itself a cosmic quirk of some kind, and then they have to somehow get life from non-life. Well, that's a religious belief. That's not observable or testable or demonstrable. Uh, that's something they believe happened in the distant past, and that's, it's, it's just a religion. Is that the way you, Dr. Scott? You know, it's funny, hearing, hearing a creationist define what evolution is is sort of like, sort of like having Madeleine Murray O'Hare to Catholicism. You might learn something, but it's elude. Uh, first of all, first or the beginning of evolution, at the beginning of the, what evolution is, what creationism is, and we just oh, start with the Big Bang. 
fine. I don't care how the Big Bang got here. Uh, maybe it was supernatural. Maybe it was natural. However the Big Bang got here, matter was produced. And at that point, we had the evolution of stars. We had the evolution of galaxies. We had the evolution of planets uh, like our own. Um, start, with some, start someplace else. Start with the first replicating molecule. Maybe it occurred naturally. Maybe it occurred supernaturally. We don't know right now. Uh, science has to investigate it from a natural standpoint because that's the limitation of science. Science, as I mentioned before, is a limited endeavor. We have to explain the natural world using natural processes. There's nothing any more atheistic about science uh, than there is atheistic about long division. You can do long division without invoking the supernatural. You've got to do science without invoking the supernatural. I agree. Let's, you know, let's take that first replicating molecule. Sure. Okay, however it got here, what happened? Did all the plants and animals occur suddenly at one time? That's Kent's position. My position and that of the vast majority of scientists is that after you get that first replicating molecule, you have the gradual development of plants and animals through time, not the sudden appearance of everything. So that's the difference between creation and evolution, and that's the confusion that they make between first cause and evolution. Okay. Evolution okay. does not depend on a natural origin of that first replicating molecule. Okay, you mentioned a couple things there. Um, you said, that you, I think, if I understand you right, you kind of admitted that uh, you, the, at least the Big Bang part and the first replicating molecule part are not testable and are not part of science, and yet they are very much part of the school textbooks. No, so I didn't say they weren't testable. As a matter of fact, there right now is very active science going on in discussing which of a number of alternate explanations best explains the origin of the first replicating molecule. Sure. Is creation one of those you're considering? Not from a, from a scientific standpoint, you can't, because you can't consider supernatural explanation in science. It's one of the limitations. Okay, so the entire subject of origins is outside the realm of science. And until they get it solved positively, I would like it out of the textbooks. I don't think kids should be taught your view without being taught all views. I don't think that it is outside of science. I think a supernatural explanation is outside of science. Well, hold it. No, you, you beg the question. How did the universe get started? How did the first life get started? Do you know? Can you prove it scientifically? You're outside the realm of science. There Believe me. are a number of theories that are competing with each other right now about the first replicating molecule. Sure, and the kids ought to be shown all of them, including the creation theory. Actually, it might come as a surprise to you, but when I was teaching evolution at the college level, I would mention to kids that we were, I, I would say, well, here we're going to study evolution. Evolution means change. Describe it a little bit. And uh, there's lots and lots of evidence to show that this change through time took place. And now we're going to discuss, or during the semester, we're going to discuss how this change could have come about. And it could have come about through natural selection, through Lamarckism, through saltation, et cetera, et cetera. And possibly it might have come about because it was the will of the supernatural, because it was God's will. Yeah, but and you, missed, you, you still missed the origins part. The important part. I'd go on to say, we can't study that in this class because this is a science class. And science is incompetent to study the supernatural. I guess if we somehow invent a theometer, we can do it, but until that point, we can't bring supernatural explanations in to explain the natural world. And with that, i got to stop because we have to break for news. Dr. Kent Hovind's here at the studio, Dr. Eugenie Scott in California. They both agreed to stay over into the next half hour, and we'll continue our conversation following the news next here on 1110 WBT Charlotte. Go ahead, Mr. Questions, although we uh, request to keep your questions very short. 570-1110 or toll-free 800-WBT-1110. We left off in the last half hour where we had the argument between evolution as a religion and the fact that evolution is taught in schools while creation is, creationism is not because it is considered to be religion. Dr. Scott, 
Do you see a problem with teaching one but not the other? Not at all, because I do not agree in the slightest that evolution is a religion. Uh, evolution is part of science. Science has to be religiously neutral. It's a limited enterprise that must explain the natural world using non-supernatural means. But you're not, are you discouraging the teaching of creationism to children? I am discouraging the teaching of, of creationism as science to children. I think that children should learn biblical literalist creationism. They should learn non-literalist creationism. They should learn uh, the creation stories of the Mundaruku and the Hopi and the Australian Aborigines. I think comparative religion is a wonderful idea, and I, I think children need to know that. Dr. Hovind, since Dr. Scott believes that the children should be taught all of those things, do you believe children should be taught all of those things? Oh, I, I, I collect the public school textbooks. I assure you they are not taught biblical creationism in the public school textbooks, at least at the grade school, junior high, and high school level. It is not offered. I have the books from every major publisher. But you believe they should be taught sure, that? Sure, that's only you fair. believe they should be taught the other, the other creationist uh, theories of other religions? Oh, yeah. I think on a level playing field, if kids are allowed to view all the various options, if, they, if somebody says, hey, we think the world's not standing on the back of a giant turtle, they would see that silly. And I think the, the literal biblical creationist view would win out hands down. So, we have no, so actually, between the two of you on this topic, we have no argument. It's just that Dr. Scott doesn't want to see the creationist point of view taught as science. Is that correct? Right. And, but see, she wants her evolution, which is a religion, included in with science. That's where I would differ. Evolution should also be in the comparative religions. I don't understand why you think it's a religion. I, I don't, I don't well, understand that. In order to be science, it has to be observable. Nobody observed them when the world was created. Nobody has ever seen an animal change to any other kind of animal. That's never been observed. They all, Cats always have kittens. Let's uh, go quickly to the phones before we run out of time in this segment. WBT, you're on the air with our two guests. Hi. Yeah, I think the truest thing that's been said here is that this is a situation that cannot be resolved. Obviously, both people have their own set of uh, uh, facts, and they're going to interpret it. But I have a question. Assuming this lady, Miss Scott, is saying that the only place that we have a story of creationism is in the Bible, and assuming that story of creationism is wrong, the problem that I see is the whole Bible crumbles. In order to take her theory... Have her explain how it could be that you could have millions of years of death through evolution, and the Bible specifically says no one died until man sinned. Now, the danger is when you take her view, as Christians have tried to do in the last few years, you destroy God's creation. And if you read the book of Job, you will find that God didn't even address Job and give him an explanation of how he was. How he, was. he said, Job... Can you even explain my creation? In Exodus, chapter 19, verse 4, it says that God sent uh, eagles to fly Israel on their wings out, uh, to, out, of, out of Egypt. Did that really happen? Well, there's metaphors and similes used all through the Bible. Well, the the who, weatherman who, says the sun to, rose this who's morning. Who's to change? Who's to, who's, to, who's to pick and choose what are metaphors and what are, what are literal... Well, in the, he, in the Hebrew rendering, it's obvious. I mean, they could, they, any, any child can pick it out. You know, but the weatherman this morning said the sun rose at, at 6.15. Did the sun rise or did the earth turn? Someone yeah. answer my question. How could we have evolution? See, I much resent someone saying it doesn't matter whether the earth evolved or was created, and I think God finds that to be an abomination. All right, stop. Whoa! Well, I told you to keep it short. Now, go, no, I agree. It matters a lot. You're gone. You can listen to the answer on the radio. It matters a lot. I agree. Okay, Dr. Scott, do you have a problem with that? I'm not really sure what his question his was, question, to his, tell you the truth. His question was, how can we believe in evolution with thousands and thousands and millions and millions of years of death if the Bible says that no one died until man sinned? And man didn't sin until Adam and Eve ate, ate the apple off the tree, which I would, I don't know how many days that was in the Garden of Eden, but... 
It wasn't very long. Well, it's a non-question because he's saying, first, assume the Bible is literally true, which, of course, the majority of Christian denominations do not assume. And then, if you assume the Bible is literally true, how can you say you're right? And, of course, in science, you're not assuming the Bible is literally true. I mean, uh, maybe, maybe a way of turning this question around would be to ask him. I mentioned before that there were 80 separate layers of coal seams in the Midwest. Uh, if you take a look at the amount of coal reserves that there are in the world, the entire biomass of the world today couldn't possibly be converted to that much fossil fuel. Uh, there had to have been an enormous amount of time involved in the laying down of those coal seams. Or, or a different, a different much, set of conditions. That much uh, organic material at one time. You know, obviously there was death. I, I think your, your caller might might need to talk to a minister more than to a scientist. Okay, we've got to take a break. We'll come right back with more of your phone calls. Dr. Kent Hovind, Dr. Eugenie Scott here on WBT. Own Carolina Panthers helmet number one and help United Way of Central Carolina. Solutionist, and we're, uh, you're next on WBT. Keep it short. Hi. I have a question uh, related to, to the, for the creationist. Um, given the fact, or given the, the uh, fact that the Bible says that the stars, uh, the sun, and the moon were created during the seven days of creation, um, and the fact that it is that stars are measurably millions of light years away, and the light that we see now uh, was in fact being produced millions of years ago. Uh, I don't see how that can be reconciled with the 10,000 year. Or, okay, or good question. In the creation. All right, good question. Sure, good question. Uh, you're, you're laboring under a uh, delusion here. You say the stars are measurably millions of light years away. That simply is not true. The furthest they can measure using parallax trigonometry is about 60 to 100 light years. So we do not know how far away those stars are. Uh, it could be the whole universe is rotating like everything else is, and the red shift is caused by the stars moving. Uh, instead of by their great distances. Nobody knows what causes the red shift, and we do not know how far away the stars are beyond 100 light years. Some say 200. Okay, I'll give them 200. Secondly, secondly, I'm not saying they're all within 100 light year radius. Now, don't misunderstand that. I'm just saying they cannot be measured, period. Secondly, we do not know that the speed of light has always been what it is today. There is no possible way to prove the speed of light is a constant, and it has always been at this speed. And thirdly, you cannot prove that God did not create a mature creation. Adam and Eve were full-grown. They looked like adults when they were zero years old. So, How do you know? Were you there? No, I wasn't there, but see, that's a reasonable explanation of it. The evolutionist explanation is the only one that is tax-supported. I'm not against people believing in evolution. I'm against supporting it with my tax dollars. Hey, doc Dr. Scott, any comments? Well, he gets into real problems with theologians if he suggests that God is a trickster that made everything just look old because uh, he wanted to fool us into thinking evolution had taken place. So that, was a that was an explanation that was rejected 300, 200 years ago. When, or sorry, 300 years ago when it was first suggested by Hermann Gosse. Um, the, uh, the idea that, um, that God just made everything look old is one that theologians have a lot of trouble with for obvious reasons. No, I didn't say he made it look old. It has to be mature. The trees had to be full grown or they don't work. Adam and Eve, he didn't create babies. It's just a matter of a function. It has to be so, mature. So in terms of the, uh, the distance of the stars, he just made it look like the stars were, were uh, billions of light years away. Well, do you know that light has always traveled at the same speed? Do you know what light is. Can you show me anybody who knows what light is? Is it particles, waves, photons? There isn't a person in the... kept up with the creationist literature. There's been quite a bit of discussion about Barry Setterfield's idea that an Australian creationist that somehow the speed of light has slowed down in the last uh, couple of uh, thousands of years. Uh, most creationists have rejected that firmly. 
Well, I, I don't know. I, I wasn't there either. But I'm just saying it is a reasonable explanation. And the evolutionist explanation uh, is the only tax-supported religion we have right now, and I resent that. All right, let's go off to another phone call. WBT, hello. Mike, I appreciate you having this uh, discussion on the air today. Okay, make it quick. Uh, got a quick, quick quote and then a question for your uh, guest in California. Um, as to whether or not evolution is fact or faith, um, L. Harrison Matthews, in his introduction to Origin of Species, Darwin's Origin of Species, said the fact of evolution is the backbone of biology, and biology is thus in peculiar position of being a science founded upon an unproved theory. Is it then a science or a faith? Belief in the theory of evolution is thus exactly parallel to belief in special creation. Both What's your question? Don't read a book to me. What's your question? Well, I was just saying, he said... What's your question? My question is, how does she reconcile the fact that there are dinosaur footprints that have been found alongside of human footprints in Texas if, assumingly, she believes that the dinosaurs were extinct before man came into being? Doctor? If your readers want to know about the Paluxy River footprints, they can call me on our 800 number, uh, if, you, if you don't mind me giving it, Mike. Uh, we have carefully analyzed the Paluxy River so-called man tracks and dinosaur tracks together. There's nothing to it. They are erosional features. They're scour marks. In some cases, they're eroded dinosaur prints. I'm sorry to say there is no evidence of dinosaur and human footprints together in Texas or any place else. Okay. I was there two weeks ago, Mike, in Glen Rose, Texas. This is a casting. I'm holding it in my hand. You're welcome to examine it. This is a casting from there, certified by Clifford Burdick, a geologist who found it in the strata. There are 600 of those footprints. I have walked in them myself. I have analyzed them carefully also, and I would disagree 100%. Hey, Dr. Scott, this footprint is as long as my forearm. 16 right. inches long, size and, 24. And it's probably just as deep as the dinosaur footprints were, too. But they try to say that's a dinosaur footprint. I have footprint. no idea. You know, the wonders of radio, I can't exactly see what you're holding up. Well, what I'm holding sure. is a casting of a footprint that is that is the length of my forearm. Size 24. Is, and it, it is a footprint. I mean, it is a large Unless it was artificially made, it is a large footprint. Well, a lot of them were artificially made. Okay. Now, hold it up, just a minute now. industry back in the Depression, people would cut out dinosaur footprints and sell them to tourists, and they just... Dis well, now, this is a huge... This is a... This is a human a, footprints, they sold even better. Okay. And Burdick will admit that an awful lot of those prints are human foot... are, are carvings, are, are, uh, are fake. An awful lot. Wait a minute. Five or six were carved, uh, and the, you're right about that, but uh, seven, 600 have been excavated. Right, let me try to get a one more phone call before we go any further here, because we're running out of time fast. Hi, WBT. You there? Guess not. Hi, WBT. You there? Yes, Mike, I am. Okay. I have a question for Dr. Scott, and I'm not a scientist by any means, but in regards to the law of thermodynamics, uh, how can you explain the first law where it states that that matter and energy works from a organized state to a disorganized state in light of evolution, which seems the opposite from a disorganized state to a very organized and complex state. And I'll hang up and listen to the answer. Okay, thanks for your call. Doctor? Here, here again, sir, I'm afraid you've been misled by somebody. They've only given you part of the story about the second law of thermodynamics. They've left out a very important component, which is that, yes, there's a tendency for matter to become, or energy to become less organized in a closed system. The planet Earth is an open system because it receives energy from the sun. And there is no problem at all from a physics standpoint with evolution taking place because on the planet Earth and perhaps elsewhere in the universe, who knows, we are dealing with open thermodynamic systems. Dr. Scott is the executive director of the National Center for Science Education. You wanted to give out your toll-free number. Go ahead and do that. If any of your listeners are interested in the creation evolution controversy, they can call me at one 800 290 6006 800-290-6006. We're out of time. 
Dr. Kent Hoven is in town tonight and tomorrow night to speak at the Denver Baptist Church from 7 until, what, 9 o'clock? Yes, tonight. And it's a, it's a, it's a multi-video. It's a slide. Yeah, I got it? lots of visuals, hands-on stuff. and uh, uh, I cannot afford an 800 number, but if I could give mine, sure, they could contact ahead. me. Absolutely. I'm at uh, Pensacola, Florida, mm -hmm. and it's Hovind, and it's 904-479-DINO, uh, D-I-N-O. Is that the 8987 number? Yes. Okay. No, I've got my home phone. Dino is the office line. Okay, Dino is the office line. Okay, D-I-N-O. It's spelled H-O-V-I-N-D. Kent Hovind. Hovind, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, both thank you, me. for Thank you, sir. And I hope we can call on you again, Dr. Scott, sometime in the future. I'd be happy to. Thank you. Thanks for staying over, too. It's 420.